0: Welcome to Take Care. This is the podcast that helps you understand the background and habits of change makers. Host Rish Sharma and his guests give you the wisdom to help you learn a little more and get a bit better every episode.
1: Welcome everyone to the Take Care Podcast. Today's guest is Jeremy Kai, CEO of Italic. Italic is disrupting the luxury market to make it more affordable and approachable for everyone. Welcome, Jeremy. Happy to have you on the Take Care Podcast.
0: Hey, thanks so much for the invite. It's great to be here.
1: Yeah, it's uh, it's a real pleasure to have you here as somebody who is also an active user of uh, Italic. To have the CEO here talk about Their journey and the brand itself is great. So, maybe you could just start the audience, give them a brief summary on your backstory that led you to the point of creating Italic and the genesis of that idea.
0: Sure. I have your classic stereotypical tech backgrounds. I grew up in the Midwest. I I went to school out east and then I I dropped out, moved to San Francisco, started a tech company. And did that whole thing. But I think uh, the background with Italic was that, first of all, I think when you drop out and start a business, you really ought to enjoy what you're doing. I I started an HR tech company, and and frankly, I don't think any kid drops out of school to work on selling enterprise HR software. I got, I think, four or five years in, I I was pretty tired of it. Um, Still on great terms with the company. My my co founder and I of that company are very close. But Mm. I think for me, I wanted to work on something that was much closer to what I was passionate about. My parents come from the manufacturing world. They've been in it for 40, 50 years now. And I think the longer you spend working in manufacturing, the more you realize how backwards and antiquated the entire yeah. supply side of the industry is. Manufacturers are, they're producing the final products, but they're oftentimes making maybe 4 to 5% of the final retail price mm-hmm. of what the consumer pays. And in, in doing so, a customer you know, is really paying for the brand or a retail price or sorry, they're, they're paying for the, uh, a brand or a retailer's markup on, on the price point. So mm-hmm. I think the genesis for Italic really came from the idea of taking a technology point of view, learning from a lot of the great marketplaces that had started um, around the same time as, as I was starting my first company. This is like when Uber and, and Airbnb really hit their stride. And, uh, and I think learning a lot about the uh, marketplace uh, principles and applying that to um, a very offline world of of manufacturing um, and consumer goods. So Mm -hmm. um, that's really the genesis for for Italic. Nice,
1: nice. And uh, whereabouts, uh, is there any particular regions that you look for your your goods from um, based on your parents' uh, background and whatnot? Is it primarily in Asia? Is it Europe? Is it a combination and a mixture of all?
0: Yeah, sure. So we have manufacturers in Europe, Asia, and uh, the U.S. right now generally when we're sourcing our products, we try to find uh, the best possible manufacturer for a specific category. So for example, in luggage, that's most likely in China, water bottles, that's most likely in China. But when we're talking about things like leather goods, sometimes we'll look for Italy, our, our sneakers are in Portugal, some of our apparel is in the US. So we really try to take a agnostic. We try not to bias ourselves by saying, okay, hey, we'll never manufacture an XYZ but instead mm-hmm. try to find the best possible manufacturer for the category. Okay, And we vet them by saying, who have you produced for in the past? What certifications do you have? You know, what employee count, like, how old is the business, et cetera. Just to make sure that, okay, we're partnering with people who we really want to be in business with. Our relationship with our manufacturers to jump ahead a little bit is mm-hmm. not the standard relationship in which we're simply placing purchase orders and they're a, a vendor whom, whom. We'll go to every couple of months. Our manufacturers are really close financial partners in which they're actually taking on inventory risk of their own. So it's very different than a standard brand okay. or a retailer relationship. So the thing we really care about finding, you know, partners who are reliable. Oftentimes that is in China, but also partners that are really focused on producing high quality goods, regardless of what the category is.
1: So if i just curious question, if they are taking a piece of Inventory risk. Are they also getting a piece of the upside also? Is that how you win yep. them on? Okay.
0: Exactly. That's the, uh, that's the model. So manufacturers typically will make maybe 15 to 25% on a good day. Of a bulk order that would, they would receive from a, a brand. And, uh, and then when a brand buys it, obviously they're in apparel, it might be five x and skincare it might be 10 X. It's a pretty hefty markup that's baked into these product margins and and when it comes to the final sale, a manufacturer will only make a fraction of what the brand does. And the real reason is because their brand is taking inventory risk. And same in a retail distribution you know, line. The retailer is buying inventory from the brand, maybe with Keystone pricing, and they're splitting the, the profit. But really, the risk is on the retailer by then because they're taking the inventory risk. So if a manufacturer wanted to take inventory risk by any means possible right now, there's really no ways to do it. They would yeah. either have to set up their own brand, which is clearly not in the competency of a manufacturer. Yep. Um, try to distribute on, on Amazon where quality, frankly, is is very hard to differentiate. And since most things are commoditized by then. And so really what I call italic is we call it like more of a private label as a service in which we only work with really high quality manufacturers. And we try to, you know, find the same ones as the top brands in a category. we'll use the same quality of material. But because we're actually, you know, empowering them to have a direct line to distribution, we're trying to triple more so Double to triple their profit margins, which is still a very small amount for what it's worth a, compared to a brand price. But in doing so, they're increasing the yield on their production capacity by taking the risk themselves and having a direct line of distribution.
1: Yeah. And it also makes your supply chain a lot more efficient if they know they have some risk and some upside. They're going to pr- prioritize potentially your orders over somebody else potentially in their supply chain. So, yep, exactly. Uh, right. So that's that on a company that's dependent on uh, through a membership, dependent on uh, reliability and goods being in, in stock on a regular basis, because they're paying to be a part of a network or a community uh, as very important, so it's a very clever way of uh, putting it together. So let's take it back to when you took the jump, thinking with your co-founder for the HR software, what were the valuation that you took? someone that was taking that leap of faith into entrepreneurship, what were the factors that you considered to take it? And so if somebody else is also considering taking that leap right now.
0: The, (laughs) I think the biggest, it it doesn't, it it hasn't been that many years. We we started the company in like the winter of 2014. And but even in the span of five, you know, six years now it's the world's changed a lot, I, I think in many ways especially on, in terms of valuation, I had a friend recently who raised a, a really sizable series B I think like a quarter billion dollar valuation. And they were doing the same monthly recurring revenue as we were when we raised our, our seed round in, in 2014 for, for fountain, which was my first mm-hmm. company. I think valu- valuations are always a tricky thing. Cause I think if you're young you, you don't know better and 20% doesn't seem like that much cause you're like, you still own 80, but you know, yeah. that, the dilution really does add up. I think in terms of your first time, you know, there's a lot of really bad advice online. I think you should try to find a network of people who you can actually trust of, of founders who have been there before. I think if you can find someone who has, you know, been down your path, but maybe is three years in, in the future and, uh, and they're willing to take a chance on you and, and help you out through some of these things, whether they're investing, advising, whatever it is. If you're, if they're advising, by the way, don't give them, we're talking like 0.15 to 0.2% of equity. Don't do like a lot of, I think first time founders will you know, try to do one, two, three, four, 5%. It, it really it's uh, if you're building a venture business, like that's really not a smart move. Yeah. Um, but I think like, if you can find someone like that to really be your champion and make those intros for you, talk through these deals, fundraising is like a, I think a very opaque process that I think you really have to go through a couple of times to understand how to do it the right way. Um, otherwise realistically, a a, a venture capitalist like job is to obviously be supporting the founder, but also to be better getting the best possible, like ownership position for the least amount of capital. I think I could talk about valuations all day, but I I think with Fountain specifically, I think we, we actually had three, like, it was a pretty complex early financing history. And frankly, it's because we didn't know any better. We Mm -hmm. did YC, we did a seed round on a price. We did a safe round. At several safe rounds and it, it became, it got to a point where we like, even to a, a very sophisticated council, it, it was like unclear as to who owned what, um, because those convertibles hadn't converted to priced yet. So I think the earlier you can set yourself up for a clean cap table with good people on board, the better you're setting up your, yourself up for success later.
1: Oh, that's crucial. I think great advice for somebody that's starting a new fun, funded company. I want to get back to Italic what is what was that unique insight that you and you mentioned you saw antiquated nature in the manufacturing industry but there must have been some event some moment that sparked or a series of moments of, that sparked that idea if you could just delve into that a little bit
0: oh yeah i think the i don't think there's like a single point where it was like, Hey, that's the, what started it all. I think Mm -hmm. um, it was a continuation. I was, I I think a good way to put it is around the same time as we were thinking about the idea for italic, I think a lot of the second generation of direct to consumer brands have had come out. People call them DTC brands, digitally native you know, vertical, whatever the term is. Like these, to me, they're actually just brands. They're not tech companies whatsoever, but they're raising value rounds at valuations that would be 10, 20, sometimes 30 X, top line revenues, which to a, to an investor who, who who has spent any time in retail that makes no sense whatsoever, but, but I think the, around that same time, I think there was an interesting, I guess on the consumer side, there was an interesting trend where, you know, the first generation of direct to consumer brands, this is like the Warby's, Everlane's, Bonobos, they had this common phrase, which was, we're cutting out the middleman. And I think at the time it was actually true they were cutting out the retailer and uh, and instead they were spending that same amount of margin frankly on facebook and google and the price points like yes they might have been slightly cheaper for a customer but they weren't like drastically cheaper but it was directly to your doorstep which i think was just different i think that original narrative which i think was really exciting and i think could have been taken to a logical conclusion of cutting out consecutive middlemen as the technology became stronger I think actually warped in many ways in which like around the 2014 to 2018 era of like what I call the second era of like direct consumer brands, they really weren't even talking about that at all. It's just like, Hey, we're building a brand online. And it's oftentimes a couple MBAs who like have this idea to sell a product online because there's great margins on it or, mm-hmm. or whatever have you. And I think the, if you look at that trend from a manufacturing point of view, it doesn't matter if the brand, if your clients are traditional, like a legacy brand or a retailer. It doesn't matter if they're wholesalers. It doesn't matter if they're a, a new brand, like a modern online brand. Your your margins are the same either way, and you get screwed out of the upside, whatever way you turn. It doesn't matter. So I think, I think the idea for the the consumer side was, hey, like these people are unknowingly paying. Really high multiples on on cost of of products that like actually don't cost that much to produce, and then on the flip side for supply, they really are not able to access the actual upside of the product that they themselves are, are producing. And so I think there's a combination of like, hey, a lot of these brands are popping up, raising like eye popping multiples, and and I think on the the to a customer. I think there's a lot of value-driven customers out there who, you know, really the, the appeal is these are nice things that are sold, you know, online with a nice brand on it, but like, frankly, the actual cost of, of these products is, is not that high. And then on the flip side for supply, it's really just like, how do we empower the manufacturers to like basically own their own destiny by controlling their own product lines, putting in their own money into inventory, and hopefully getting return out of it.
1: Thank you for breaking that down. So just the next I guess, logical step in the conversation is how do you decide like what product lines to launch, what products to launch, what categories to launch? What's the process that you go through to as you develop these new categories?
0: Yeah. We take a, <laughs> I think there's we do two things. One is like very quantitative, one is qualitative. Qualitatively it's very simple we have a lens of which if we look at a menu if we look at a category is it a category that is sufficiently high margin are we talking like 5 10 15x markups classically across the industry is it something that has maturity online we don't want to be the first people selling something online we i think that's not our competency mm-hmm. and then and lastly, it's, we don't want to take anything logistically complex. So we don't want to be shipping perishables. We don't want to be shipping like very large items. We want the sweet spot of like small to medium sized products. So that's just qualitative. I think there's more in there, but generally that's how we view uh, the categories when they're submitted. And then the quali- the quantitative side, I think is, is much more I think it's actually much easier to arrive at conclusions as to what's what is going to sell well. On, on one hand, we, we, we constantly survey our both customers as well as non-customers. So on the customer standpoint, we'll be asking like, what do you, what products are we missing? What can we do better? And the, every brand in the world asks you that, but I think like very few actually put that into practice. We have a weekly cadence of actually reviewing these requests. On that end, we'll look at products where we believe by introducing that category or product, it will increase improve our ability to retain our customers and members and basically by giving them what they ask for quite literally and then on the flip side a lot of people don't convert into members today because we're missing xyz so for example i live in utah and a lot of the people here are really into outdoor products and frankly most people who are really outdoors enthusiasts they probably won't be a good fit for our current catalog because we have like quality goods luxury goods apparel Mm -hmm. accessory a lot of cashmere products, but we don't cover a lot of outdoor essentials. I think if those people ask us like, Hey, can you make these things for us? Then we know that if we introduce these categories, we believe we'll have an incremental lift in our ability to convert net new members. Uh, really, I think we take, we know we're not like artists here where we're obviously there's a level of art that goes into the design and, and, and curation of what we believe will do well, but at the end of the day. We're in the business of listening to, to what our customers want from us.
1: Okay. And uh, how do you know uh, when you launch a product, how often are you reiterating on that product based on consumer feedback? Not how often does that occur?
0: Yeah, we, we iterate based off of reviews both from real customers, as well as just kind of internal decisions to improve products where we see fit, this happens on, on a lot of different products, actually, for example, our bedding originally, our duvet covers didn't come with ties and very quickly we realized, Hey, we need to add those ties in. So we were able to work with our manufacturer to prioritize a second run where that was introduced. Our, our backpacks, we've improved the uh, the pocket positions, our shoes, the sizing was not great the first time around, so the second and third runs we were able to fix that. Our down comforter, like a, a, an example in a transparent, like the challenge we have right now, is our, our down alternative pillows. There isn't enough filling, the fill power isn't strong enough, so mm-hmm. it doesn't support your neck when you sleep enough. For many customers, that's not all we, we've seen this happen. Our return rate, are, I think, relative to the rest of the industry, is like still really low. We generally fluctuate between. 3 to 10% on, on average per month. But I think generally what we really are, are are seeking is a constant, very fast feedback loop. And also because we're, our manufacturers, literal money is on the line. They tend to prioritize those fixes as quickly as possible.
1: Thank you for bringing that down. So I think like to get back to a previous comment you mentioned once before, the second generation of DTC brands were two MBA students would just come out and launch whatever product at the high margin. Obviously that's led to a very crowded space with a lot of brands. How did you go about establishing the value? Obviously you have a great value proposition with with italic, but how'd you go about standing out from all the various other brands that are marketing and using similar channels as italic?
0: Yeah, and, and just to clarify one thing, I, even though I do think that is oftentimes the case where two business students will get together and say, like, "Hey, wouldn't be this, uh, this? Wouldn't this be such a good idea to sell online?" And there's nothing wrong with that. I think that's yeah. how brands have started for decades at this point, and I think that's still a healthy business, albeit oftentimes not venture backable. I, I think in terms of how we differentiate, really, it's just uh, and quite frankly, like we haven't spent a lot on marketing quite yet. I think we have, we've been relatively conservative with this front, but generally what we're really thinking about is how do we do more brand education? This is not simply saying, Hey, we sell X, Y, Z online, but there's a lot more that goes into it. So for example, how do we inform a customer, you're shopping straight from the source, like, and the source being the manufacturer is actually trustworthy. You can do that through typography. You can do that with great. Design and, and creative, but generally, like you have to come off a certain level of polish for people to trust you. I think same with the whole concept of, like, hey, this is the same manufacturer as XYZ brands. That's obviously something that I think some people really like because they, they have a strong affinity mm-hmm. affinity for certain certain brands that they, that they see. Like, hey, if you buy our water bottle, which is made by the same manufacturer it's like Hydroflax and
1: yeah, and, uh,
0: and 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 uh, as well and, and so on but ours is like 60% lower prices, then I think there's a lot of, that can't be right. Like what's, this is too good to be true. So there's a lot more that I think like we have to do in terms of education and that, that comes in the form of like CRM, the entire life cycle side of the marketing mm-hmm. stack. But, but yeah, I think we're still figuring it out. I can't say we're, we're the best at that by any means.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a journey of, of a business is to start off small, develop, understanding of your customer's cadence and then build brand a brand through what your customer's experience is word of mouth is still the greatest champion in marketing so just to take it down to one last question before we get to the final questions so what's next for italic what's the what do you hope it to be over the next you know several years to come
0: yeah so right now we're really trying to build the flywheel model in which The more customers we have, the more leverage we have against manufacturers to convince them to join our platform. And the more manufacturers we have, the more products we have to attract, both retain our current customers as well as attract new customers. So I think really it's, it sounds very basic, but it's like, how do we get into categories that, you know, uh, we're currently not in. So for example, we just, uh, we just introduced like weights, which certainly have nothing to do with like cashmere sweaters. The more we introduce, hopefully, the more share of mind and share of wallet we would have of our existing customers. And then I think on the flip side, the more customers we have, the more I think interesting things we can do for them. So think of things not just in the form of products, but even things like services that once you hit a, a critical mass of of members, I think you can offer such as like credit cards, financial services, etc. I think that's going to take us a long time. I wish it was an overnight thing, but there's a lot of just when you deal with physical products, it's just like a much slower time scale than I think what software development has. It'll just take, I think several years to, to, to develop that skew count where we'll be in a good place, but that's probably where we'll be in the next couple of years.
1: Great. Great. So just final questions. i so just like to break down your routine. What's your daily routine and the <laughs> rituals or practices that you guys do on a constant, you, you do on a constant basis.
0: I can say with certainty that I, I'm, I've, I'm very bad at building habits and routines. Some weeks I'll wake up really early and sleep late. Some weeks I'll, I'll be not so great about sleep and I'll, I'll, I'll sleep in way too late or, or, what have you, or stay up way too late. I, I, I think a lot of people on Twitter or Silicon Valley have this like ethos. Of, hey, I have this like perfected regimen down to the minute. And I think that's always baloney. I think most people have like lives outside of work that I think are really, I guess the best way to put it is, is unpredictable. And so I think I've been very bad about building habits. There are things that I think are really helpful for work. For example, I think like playing sports. You know, I try to play tennis or go skiing here in Utah, or or reading, or, or everyone has their own like thing. Thing to, um, mm-hmm. to unwind, but I, I think I, I, I'm probably the worst person to ask about having a, a set routine.
1: You no, know, everybody has their own way of doing it. Some people more regimented, some non more more lazy free So that's great. so. Let's move on to the next question. What's the nicest some somebody has done for you? Nicest thing somebody's done for you.
0: I think so many people have done so many nice things for me, but I think one of the, probably one of the nicest things that, yeah, I, I have to, this is such a stereotypical answer, like my parents are immigrants, the nicest thing they ever could have, you know, done for me is just give me the, a great place to grow up and, and pay for my education so that I don't have college debt and I dropped out, so I helped them in that way, but <laughs> I, I was trying to come up with something that was smart, but really it's, I, I can't debate that being the nicest thing.
1: Yeah, no, I, I can relate to that. I would say, if I was answering the same question myself, I would say the exact same answer, yeah. I definitely relate to that. What does personal care mean to you?
0: I don't, I feel like I don't have anything insightful to say besides like taking care of your mind and your body. And, and for those who believe in spirit as well, I, I think that's, I'm also very bad at that. So I'm not the best at taking care of myself all the time. I think founders will say, I have a therapist and I have three coaches and I have, yeah, you know, this, this, but realistically, I think you, you got to do what you you got to do. So I, I, I think that's what it means to me, but I also know I'm I'm not good at it.
1: Yep. It's, it's always a building process as we get older. If anybody wanted to reach out to you and uh, connect with you and follow the italic journey. What's the best way to connect with you guys? Yeah.
0: I I always recommend following on Instagram or Twitter. That's at italic or my personal is Kai, with an extra J in front. Or if anyone has any um, specific questions or or things to ask about, I'm at jeremy at italic.com.
1: All right. Sounds great. Great. Okay.